0: To listen to this episode and all previous Deep Dives, Buddy Dives, and dive master interviews without commercial interruption, please subscribe and listen at Deep Dives with Monica Perez on your favorite podcasting platform. How many members of Parliament does it take to sell out the UK? hundred and two exactly. I'm Monica Perez, and this is today's Deep Dive. First, I got to tell you, if you're a new listener, you're probably going to want to skip this. It's like one minute fast forward. But if you're not, if you even just heard the last show, the October 21st, 2022 show, I have to give you an update and say thank you so much. For all the kind words I got, the messages and emails of uh, sympathy for my plight of being abruptly asked to move out of my house. And for all the people who bought t-shirts, I really appreciate that. I still have a big pile, but it's a smaller big pile now by Quite a few. So thank you so so much for that. If people want to buy t-shirts, go to the propaganda report store at Shopify. They're great t-shirts and they're practically at cost right now. But what I wanted to tell you is after I put out the show explaining my problem having to move in a hurry, that night, I mean, I had been looking at places that day. I got a quote from the movers, two men in a truck, and I had the I was supposed to sign the contract, it was in the inbox. And out of nowhere, I got a text from the agent of my landlord saying that although they were going to raise the rent by like 15%, we could, if we wanted to pay that rent, stay till my son graduated from high school at the end of June. And I am so grateful for that. And I could only believe that it was a result of prayers. And I actually got a DM from Steve, and he was like, oh, I'm so worried about you. And I said, this is just Amazing. And I said, You know, I just couldn't help but think that people prayed for me. And he said, I prayed for you. I pray for you and Brad and Cam all the time. I really care about the work you do. I hope you're well. So I'm sure he wasn't the only one. But actually, it reminded me that Cam is in a bit of a tough spot. I think I know COVID really devastated his job. He's got five little kids. And I, last time, I spoke to him. He was at his mother-in-law's house because of the hurricane. So, so he's hurting for money, and he has a GoFundMe. And I actually have some work for him. I'm going to give him a little work, but he is waiting to start that until he gets his new computer. And PP Steve brought that up to me and said he would match donations for anybody who wanted to chip into Cam's computer. So uh, I'm chipping in too. But I thought that was really nice of PP Steve. So. If you want to chip in for that last mile of Cam's GoFundMe, which he is allocating to this computer... Go to Help the Harlesses Stay Afloat. That is a GoFundMe thing, and I think people will answer the call. So thanks, PP Steve. Thank you all. I'm so excited. I'm going to have to move out, but not right this second. And I mean, there was a minute there where I was just like stared at the ceiling, or I should say like three hours, (laughs) where I just stared at the ceiling and I was like, what am I going to do? What am I going to do? So now I can handle what's happening, and um, I attribute it to this great community. I'm very thankful to you for that. And uh, now I will reward you (laughs) by giving you Fishy Rishi Part 2. So the first part last week was me just talking about how really... Uh, artificial, the whole Boris Johnson resignation and the Liz Truss resignation. These were the two last prime ministers of the U.K. And that I thought from the beginning, my first show on the subject, July, I think, 2020, uh, July 22nd, 2022, I said, I think Boris Johnson, who was forced to resign by a cascade of cabinet resignations spearheaded by Rishi Sunak, his chancellor of the Exchequer, I felt like, Rishi was going to be the PM and that Bojo was going along with it. I feel like Liz Truss was going along with it. It is even worse than I thought. So uh, yesterday, there was the Rishi Sunak became prime minister. And I think today, uh, I'm recording this on Tuesday. You're listening on Wednesday. But on Tuesday, he met with King George and he's the prime minister. So let me tell you the... I'm not going to say springboard, although later in the show I will be talking about a springboard. Uh, Let's go to our diving board today, which is a headline from the Wall Street Journal. Big picture of Sunak smiling, waving. Here's the headline. Sunak wins race for UK prime minister. I that the shortest possible headline and I hated it. It was completely misleading because let me tell you what happened. So last week, we were talking about how screwed up it was that this 1922 committee said anyone who has 100 MPs, so there are 357 Tory MPs, and that's how they choose their leader, is through the party, and the leader of the party is the prime minister. There's 357 Tory MPs, and anybody who has 100 MPs backing them can run that's by Monday at 2 p.m. And then we're going to have it all settled by Friday, October 28th. And the Rishi Sunak for sure had 100. Bojo, Boris Johnson, definitely would have 100. And then the third person in the running would be Petty Penny Mordant. So if you didn't have 100, you couldn't run. And even if three people got 100, the third person would be cut out. It would be a runoff between two people. So it was really what's going to happen by Monday at 2. Is it going to be one, two, or three people who get 100? And if it's three, who are the two people who got the most? So over the weekend, Boris Johnson flew back from the Caribbean. It was very bad timing for him. He only had the weekend to garner his support. And he probably could have done it. But he decided not to run. The party needs unity. Okay, so Penny Mordant is there, and all she needs is one hundred people to back her for it to be a runoff between her and Rishi Sunak. So she's there; she's popular. They want you, know, or she's got the most votes compared to anybody else besides Rishi Sunak. And there's a lot of call that there needs to be unity because Boris Johnson kind of trumped the Tories, you know, like divided the party. But it was between Sunak and Penny. This is what she did: she waited until like exactly two o'clock or just before two o'clock maybe after just right around two o'clock came across the wire their time she decided not to run so what does that mean that means that no other person could even try to get a hundred and I think by then sunak had 193 so it was really just going to be If she got 100, then it would be the two of them, and she backed out, leaving absolutely nobody. And Boris Johnson said that he had communicated or met with— I know he met with Sunak, and the details of the meeting were not disclosed, and he said he tried to coordinate Penny and Rishi for a unity government. I don't know exactly what that means. And he couldn't get it done. So there was three-way communication. And this race, to me, first— first, the game was rigged with these weird rules— and then it was forfeited. So I I don't know in what world you call that a win. I guess it's a win like in Little League, but he's smiling. The Wall Street Journal does not get into the fact that it was completely rigged and forfeited, nor does it get into his fishy backstory. Uh, it just doesn't dig in at all to the conflicts of interests in his running the UK, his strange citizenship saga, like it's actually hard to get some of this stuff. And I think they just started closing it down completely. So I, I think I found more on this guy last week than I did today. So let's, you know, why do I care so much about this particular thing? I'm always a little bit interested in Europe, kind of interesting to me. I don't know why. But living in California, I see, and I've lived here before, I see that this first mover thing, the first mover of like the, it was like when the smoking, smoking was banned in California, it spread, it spread like everywhere. I mean, I think it's now spread to Europe. So I think that the UK is now a first mover on what Alison McDowell calls the open air prison. And I, and Rishi Sunak is, I believe a Manchurian candidate for the people who are building that prison. And as it goes over there, it's they already have little countries that have prototypes of some of the stuff they're trying to do. But if you get the UK to demonstrate things like digital currency and digital ID and all that, which is up his sleeve, then there won't be any excuses for any other Western country. And I feel like the only hope now is for the people in the UK to see through what this guy is all about and stop him before it's too late, maybe by trying to call a general election or I don't know what. But the Tory party is like 160, 170,000 people are members of the party. And they if there had been a runoff, they might have been able to actually vote. And a lot of them are pissed that it went this way. Now, I don't know what a vote would have looked like, but I talked about that last week. I won't repeat myself more than I normally do, but I think it's just funny because this guy, his wife is a 1% owner of this company Infosys, which like works hand-in-hand with the World Economic Forum to lay the infrastructure for the digiverse, for this like one-world metaverse that will blur the lines of nation-states in favor of this global governance that might not even be physical, And I think it will be physical once it stealthily establishes itself as a digital world government. That's how I'm thinking about this. But I look at Sunak as like the way Shea Stadium became city field. Like, you know, that whole over the past, whatever it is, 20 or 30 years, everything that used to just be your, you know, Fenway Park kind of stuff became a corporate sponsored thing. And I feel like, like the, in shoehorning Rishi Sunak in the Tories instead of, like, being the Tory party, they're now, like, the Infosys party. <laughs> I feel like they've got their car- corporate sponsor, and they've all sold out. And, I mean, it's just, it's it's as crazy to me as when I found out that Berlusconi, who was the president of Italy for a long time, also owned their largest media company, or their largest newspaper. I'm like, nobody thinks that's a problem? (laughs) You know? Like, that's a problem. So, uh, okay, so let me tell you what— they'll probably put it in terms of, like, race and identity, which will shut people up. They'll make it look like, oh, you're just haters. There are a lot of parallels with Obama in this story, and I feel like the big thing with Obama was that he could push through really radical policies that people did not want because— Anybody who objected to him was called a racist, and they might do the same kind of thing with this guy. He's considered, in some things like Vox, called him a person of color, but they have a designation in the UK called POI, a person of Indian descent. And that's what he is, but he is really a citizen of the world, kind of like Obama. Kenya, Indonesia, the United States, I mean, Obama was a citizen of the world. This guy, his parents were of Punjab descent or origin, or maybe their parents were, but they were from a place in India that became Pakistan. So you can say there's Indian there, there's Pakistani there, they're Hindu. So like Pakistan is Muslim and India is Hindu. So it's like a little mixing there, but they went to Africa. Like a lot of people did during that time between when Bangladesh and Pakistan were separating, I think it was just Bangladesh back then, separating from India, they went to Africa. And specifically Kenya which again is similar to obama and kenya is a is a very strong british colonial stronghold with a lot of military intelligence and stuff and his maternal grandfather is a a member of the order of the british empire he claims because it was he worked for the irs their version of the irs for a long time but it's uh that's only awarded for outstanding achievement or service to the community, which has a long-term significant impact. So it's pretty high honor. I don't know. So I just, I wonder about his backstory. It's not crystal clear, just like Obama's. But where he came, so his backstory is that he, went to an exclusive school in Britain, which he says like, oh, my parents couldn't believe that I didn't get a scholarship there. I mean, they scrimped and saved and sent me there. I'm like, "Mm, not sure about that. Then he went to Oxford and then he went to Stanford where he met his wife. He was a Fulbright scholar, which seems to me to be like the opposite of a Rhodes scholar, I guess. I don't know, like the inverse of it. But in one article I read, he had U.S. citizenship, which he had to renounce, and his wife is an Indian citizen. She still hasn't; she's still not a UK citizen. So it's a very worldly group there. Uh, and another thing that's kind of Obama-like is the way he got in as a an MP in the first place, which he ran in a Tory stronghold. So like whoever the Tory candidate was was going to win no matter what. So they put him there so he didn't really have to fight a tough race. And if you ever read about how Obama became a state senator and then a federal senator, oh my gosh, like it is was very very uh backroom dealing at to put it nicely. So it's funny because after I wrote this whole thing about, wow, another Obama parallel, another Obama parallel, that's when I saw an article quoting a a Hindu person and UK citizen that this is our Obama moment. So that's when I started to think, oh, maybe this will try to take heat off of the radical agenda I feel like Sunak's going to bring down. Not radical the way Obama did with like healthcare or socialism, but radical with this like corporate control. So more like the fascism stuff, but like new haute fascism, not your old school fascism. It's going to be neon and chrome, but fascism nonetheless. So let's talk about his wife. Like this is where it gets fishy for me is that his wife, who went to Claremont McKenna, which is a college not too far from where I am now, she also went to Stanford where she met him. But she's worth a lot of money. And every time they talk about Rishi Sunak, they're like, oh, he was a Goldman Sachs banker and he established a private um, hedge fund, something like that. And it implies that he made his own money. But I also read that his net worth with his wife is basically equal to her worth as an almost 1% shareholder in this company, Infosys, that her father co-founded. And her family, just her immediate family, still owns like 3.5% of the company. Her mom is on the board of the Gates Foundation. So just in case you wonder, but it's a very World Economic Forum. I mean, Infosys has a page on the World Economic Forum, and the stuff on the Infosys website is pretty shocking in itself. Now, I guess the whole caste system with India is still in- important, and I'll tell you, I just saw a headline here, or I think it was in the Washington Post, but it was about Cal State included in their anti-discrimination policy that you can't discriminate against uh based on caste. And two of the professors are suing. I mean, I don't know the details because it's Washington Post and I'm absolutely never paying for that. (laughs) But it is important. And I can't find anything that identifies this guy's caste, although his wife is Brahmin and he's married to her. And I think they can't marry below themselves. And I've also read that the people who were in that diaspora to go to Africa and stuff were, like, maybe you don't get out now unless you're Brahmin, but you did not get out then unless you were Brahmin, like Kamala Harris's family's Brahmin. I don't know if I covered this last week, but the cover they gave this guy is basically that he was popular because he gave out stimmy checks. He is wise because he anticipated with great specificity how his predecessor now, Liz Truss, how her economic agenda would fail in the exact ways it would fail. And then they're talking a lot about the headwinds that the PM will now face, including inflation, lower economic growth, I guess that's stagflation, an energy crisis this winter, unions are threatening to strike because of... The cost of living increases. Labor is calling for a general election. So I feel like all these things were put in place to make the argument that the party or the MPs, the Tory MPs, felt like they needed a technocrat, like a sophisticated technocrat to lead the ship through these rocky waters. Now, I don't know how that's going to play out, if that's going to set him up to be a hero, if things aren't as bad, if it's going to make excuses for him, if things do turn out to be bad like that. I don't think they're setting him up to fail. I think in a general election, like everything says that the labor is twice as popular as Tories right now. Basically, 50 percent of the people want a labor government and like 20 something percent want a Tory government, even though Boris Johnson won in the biggest landslide in 40 years. Only a couple of years ago, they're no longer into the whole Tory thing. So does that mean when the next general election comes at the end of 2024, he's going to lose Maybe, I don't know. It doesn't matter, though, because he could get so much done. He could start so many initiatives that don't even make the radar, especially if the media doesn't cover it, that serve the World Economic Forum. And with Prince Charles, ah, sorry, King Charles, being 100% in on the World Economic Forum stuff, I mean, he does videos for them and everything. This could happen very smoothly. Obviously, the Tory MPs are completely behind him, Parliament the majority of parliament's completely behind him. They put him in there. They know why he's there. They're definitely going to support this stuff. He's actually made it clear in the past that he will actually promote things that benefit that agenda. Here are a couple of quotes on that. In June 2021, at the G7 summit hosted by Sunak. So I guess that's when he was the exchequer. A tax reform agreement was signed, which in principle sought to establish a global minimum tax on multinationals and online technology companies. And then later that year, the OECD signed an accord to join that tax reform plan. Now, this reminds me very much of how we got the income tax. They said it would only be super rich people. It would only be a very small percentage. And that was a slippery slope that became the foundation of our huge federal government. It's not even so bad that it's income tax. That is really bad, but that it is the foundation of this big centralized government. Ian Davis and I were talking about it just last week, that that, if you have a global tax, then you need a global enforcement mechanism and that, my friend, is a global government. And that's what he's after. And everyone said, well, he's a huge hypocrite because his wife was not a UK citizen. And she was getting off the hook on 20 million pounds worth of taxes that she would have otherwise paid. She capitulated in the light of day. Uh, but she had been hiding behind her lack of citizenship. And for me, that wasn't hypocrisy. It was hypocrisy. But... That underscored the need for this. So that actually supported his political position, even though it cost her 20 million pounds, which is nothing to that chick, I can tell you. So uh, another thing was, it said that as chancellor, he was pushing ahead with a new law that would pave the way for stablecoin to be used as everyday payments. So that seems like um, a stepping stone to the central bank digital currency, which is absolutely something Infosys is is pushing. So he's no stranger to pushing the Infosys agenda. So let's talk more about what that is. I'll give you kind of my overview, but then I want to just rattle off, I think there were six or seven articles on Infosys page at the World Economic Forum website. They have their own page and it has seven of their most recent articles that they contributed. And then I also want to read you just one article or just a little bit about one article on the Infosys page website itself. But just in a nutshell, if you don't want to hear all the details, they are pushing digital IDs, digital banking, central bank digital currency. This is all basically total surveillance ultimately total control they want everybody and i mean everybody inside the metaverse twinned inside the metaverse they're using the standard excuses of equity access and empowerment the whole thing you would think that that these people were saints you know that they think of themselves as you know angels from heaven here to bestow equity and uh, mana or whatever on the on the poor huddled masses. But in fact, they're pushing everybody into a metaverse. They're getting in the stuff that I was reading, these articles I'm going to highlight for you, they are basically getting the metaverse built under government mandate, basically with government subsidies, and then they're going to control it. It reminds me so much of university research, where the government pays for all the research and then the corporations take it and own it and run it and they set the rules for it. It's It's this fascism thing. It's this public-private partnership. It's all of that. And Infosys pervades it so much, I can't tell whether, you know, if Infosys is just a part of the World Economic Forum or if the World Economic Forum is the face of Infosys. I mean, everything the World Economic Forum wants is based on the digital infrastructure that Infosys is going to build. And it will form the framework of a highly controlled society that's largely virtual. Some of the things they're working on are projects to access everyone's data all the time, and they are in the process of dividing and uh, of devising and testing global policies that will govern this. So they are privately working on that. And some of the cities where they are testing it out, I'll tell you, They include Chattanooga, Dallas, by the way, they don't write Tennessee or Texas, they write USA, Chattanooga, USA, Dallas, USA, that really drives me crazy, Leeds, Melbourne, Pittsburgh, San Jose, Toronto, and of course, London. I mean, that just plugs into their vision of the world populated by cities, but without nations. And that's where that one world government, that global tax, the data sharing and the governance of the data, that all smacks of this this nationless world run by them, run on Infosys anyway. Maybe not by Infosys, maybe it's by the alliance that the World Economic Forum Alliance that Infosys is a part of, but it's going to be run on <laughs> Infosys. And one of the things they're doing, and it's in UK, this is the thing called Springboard, and that's why I feel like Sunak is in such a position to promote this stuff. It reminds me, the Springboard thing reminds me of a show I did, I think it was August 26th, 2022, about the loan forgiveness from a plan that Biden put down, and I was talking about some of the initiatives, like IBM has this initiative, Where they, from like middle school through high school and free community college, will train their coders basically on the government's dime. And that's what the springboard thing is. They've talked about anywhere from 4 to 10 million people needing these new digital skills, and they are there to partner with the government to deliver those skills. And what that means to me is the government is subsidizing their workforce, which I hate. I mean, I I consider public transportation to be the government subsidizing corporate workforces, and I just, this is the worst. And they just, they have a lot of business from governments. And, And the typical thing with the governments is they force... It's just like the VAX. The governments tax you, pay for the thing, force you to be a part of it, and the corporations have the private profit from it. I mean, it is it is fascism 2.0, for sure. And this stuff was kind of rolled out a little bit in India, and it faced a lot of scrutiny because like, their digital ID was tied to welfare payments and stuff, and it went through court cases and did get pushed back a little bit, but these, to me, are just trial runs. They just want to see how things work so that they can prepare for the rollout in a more important place. Some people are saying that it's tied to a social credit score concept and that China is the prototype for that. And Infosys does quote China and you know brags about how great their system is. They also, oh my gosh, the last show I did, so between my part one of this and this, I released a show, a conversation I had with Jeremy Kuzmara from Covert Action Magazine, and we talked about how they use corruption, anti-corruption, to punish business businessmen or or corporate leaders who don't fall in line. So it's not anti-corruption like with an even hand. It's anti-corruption that's used just to penalize people who aren't playing ball, who are threatening the partners. And Infosys is a big part of that with the World Economic Forum and their partnering against corruption initiative. So that was totally relevant. I mean, you would not believe how much I read and researched on this ever since the last time we spoke. As a matter of fact, I had a part two in the can, but I just... It was some of this stuff, but I had so much more that I had to scrap it, which is why this part two is going to (laughs) be very long. But the last thing I'll say about the UK is that they, in March, established an office for digital identities and attributes. This is the UK government, and when it was announced that this woman, Sue Daly, the Director for Technology and Innovation at Tech UK, which is a trade association, man, did she use World Economic Forum um, euphemisms or w- words for this. She said, given that next steps are now being taken, continued cooperation between industry and government remains the best chance for a successful implementation of a digital identity ecosystem, very WEF, in the UK. She said, oh, however totally out of the World Economic Forum. We must also ensure we bring citizens on this journey with us. Building public trust and confidence in digital ID must be a key priority as we move forward. And, you know, they never say making it trustworthy is important. They say making people trust it is important. Now, that is propaganda. And they make no bones about it when you dig into the vaccine stuff, that it is all about propaganda. It is all about the impressions. All right, so... Here are some of the details of the Infosys World Economic Forum continuum. I'm going to start with the article that's actually on the Infosys website. It's called The Promise of the Metaverse. So here is them kind of laying out what the metaverse is, their vision for it, and all that it's they're talking about how humans are connected to digital twins with identities and assets completely run by code and transferable across platforms so they call it like a platform agnostic metaverse so you can leap from you know from the Facebook one to the Google one to whatever they are talking about, blurring the lines between biology and technology that's at the heart of the fourth industrial revolution. Now, I always thought it was about cyborgs. And I guess when you put on a VR headset, you're basically a cyborg, but they really aren't so much interested in the cyborg as they are in the twin at this point, it looks like. And they are saying that it is a confluence of technologies from extended reality. So that's XR. I did the DNB XR of like extended release because of pills. But anyway, it's extended reality. Sorry about that. Uh, To the Internet of Things, to 5G, to graphics displays and the cloud. And they talk specifically about Mesh for Teams by Microsoft as a mixed reality platform for the workplace. Like so much of this stuff came from COVID as a massive experiment. And they talk about that. They say that these experiences, these mixed reality or virtual reality experiences will be tailor-made to be perceptive, sentient, and present. I mean, that is the AI I think I t- I've talked about this many times, but there was a Quartz article from an NSA guy that said that Google was created so that the searches that you do can create a psychological profile of you and they can they can create, I don't know if it said outright that it would be AI, but it was very clear that they were creating birds of a feather to make a person feel like they're part of a group, even if they're the only person in that online space. And this really feels like that. They happened to mention that business travel would be sharply reduced, and I definitely got the sense over COVID that they were ready to gut airlines for sure. They talked about how outright how the COVID lockdowns were basically a giant experiment and how virtual workplaces would work and what humans in isolation would do, what they needed, how you could adapt to that, plan for that in a virtual reality. And and the one thing they said kind of in one, I mean, this article is huge, but they said a great deal of personal data will be required to build these individual experiences. Think about that. They want to know everything about you, everything about you, and they're going to create this little world for you and you alone. And they are going to control it, they're going to write the rules for it, and they're going to extract all the information that gets generated by that. They also mentioned that gaming and the spike in gaming, especially among middle-aged people during COVID, really helped embrace, get people's minds around the metaverse, that the metaverse isn't about gaming, but that's the gateway that they're going to use and that there were plenty of... References in popular culture, predictive programming, real experiences that were designed or at least looking back seemed to serve getting people used to the metaverse. Snow Crash, which is a book I loved, but yes, big problem there. Ready Player One, Second Life, which I don't know, World of Warcraft, definitely know that. Red Dead Redemption 2, I think my husband played that, (laughs) Um, said that their early iterations, they even said that Disney or implied that Disneyland was an early iteration of or an old prototype of this kind of fantasy world, a virtual world. Think about that. I mean, I'm not saying they were in on it necessarily, but to you think that definitely would be a prototype. So, okay, here are the titles of the articles on the Infosys page of the World Economic Forum. First title, Digital Identity Can Help Advance Inclusive Financial Services. It'll foster data sharing, the digital ID thing, banking for all. I mean, all of this stuff is about getting you onto that digital ID, but because they're couching it hand-in-hand with financial services, and some people have said, if you think of the example that they're using in China, it's going to be tied to social credit, you are I mean, this really sets up the possibility, as we've talked about before, that you're not going to be able to transact in the marketplace without a good social credit score. And that is when it starts sounding apocalyptic, like Mark of the Beast type stuff. Oh, and they want a digital stability board to advance digital regulation that they are working out. And the financial stability board that they're using as a reference, you know, because it's about banking, And similarly, if this is about digital and data, you're not really going to be able to understand it, but for sure the devil is going to be in the details. And they're talking about um, the one that they did in India included the ways that they they incorporated your digital identity would be photos, 10 fingerprints, two iris scans, facial recognition. They're saying it's going to be tied to passports. They didn't say Vax passports, but I assume voting, SIM cards, your mobile phone, work attendance, the know your customer thing. I don't know a lot about that, but I've heard people recoil in horror, seen people recoil in horror to that. And of course, all they say is we need equal access for the poor. We need to bank the poor because, you know, the internet and banking is what the poor need. And underneath all of this, it talks about how we have to really invest in this future. Is this a future that any of us wants? Why do we have to really invest in this future? Why are we going this way? And they act like they're doing it out of altruism. Um, And they talk, you know, sometimes they talk about democratic purposes and stuff, but it's definitely not that. And then when you see how they benefit from it, I mean, similar to the VAX where like 7 billion people were going to be customers paid for by their taxes, forced by their government, I feel like that's what Infosys is. They're like, we can have 7 billion people on our systems. And that's great. And that is a throwback to me to that proudy book about, uh, that. it was about the JFK assassination, but he mentioned that hundreds of years ago when Magellan circumnavigated the globe, that is when the European empires realized the size of the problem of dominating the world and said, okay, now that we have our mind around the problem, we can set about getting it done. And that's how I feel about this. Next title, Three Levers for Ensuring Equitable Access to the Data Economy. All right, so what they're saying is... Access that they act like they're talking about you having the privacy of your own data, but what they want is for for it to be all in one place for all these little companies that build their business on data that keep your data secure because if other people get it, it ruins their competitive advantage. So it's in their interest to keep your data secure. These guys are saying no. We want access to all the data that everybody gets. We want to write the rules. We want the government to subsidize the infrastructures. We want to make sure that there's all plug and play. Data stuff for everybody to use, small businesses and everything. So nobody and and what I read in that is that nobody would develop the ability to really collect the data to create these competing data systems. And with you, if it's mobile, if it's yours, yes, you can carry it around to other places. But to me, that feels like there will be oligopolies that are poised to gobble up all of this data. The government will use it as well. Will this be the data that feeds that machine that? that the semiconductors are building, that that AI, that all data all the time. I feel like, yes, I feel like they're trying to break down the barriers to data. Obama did a lot of that with Eric Holder. It used to be that states... And the feds were not to share data. That was in the 1974 Privacy Act. And there were some elements of that in Obamacare. But the Sandy Hook thing, you think it was about gun control. I think it was about sharing that data. It's all about sharing the data. And it will accrue to the benefit of these guys on top who have the capacity to use it all to control it all. They will be the ones who hold the reins. And I feel like it's just like taxes. It will come out of the middle-sized companies and it will benefit the big guys. And it will be said to benefit the people, the individual. They even talk about how it will create network effects. And so once it creates network effects, you have to be a part of that system. You won't be able to be rogue. You won't be able to be outside the system. And that, I think, at a critical mass, that's the way it's going to be. And I really don't like that because they're saying it'll be transparent and egalitarian. I think that means it will have central control. It will be opaque. It will be vulnerable. I, uh, You know, I just, I hate that. Next title. Our Alliance is Creating Smart City Governance. So this is about some things that I've touched on already. They want to use the Internet of Things, which is like the Internet is in everything, and they collects data. They want to use that data to help cities combat crime and reduce pollution. So the whole focus on crime, you can be assured, is meant to foster fear and acceptance of this. They talk about their G20 Global Smart Cities Alliance that's establishing global policy norms For Data Collection and Use, Transparency, and Public Trust. And they're doing experiments in different cities. And they're talking about how different cities represent different style of city. And you have to understand what they're learning on a city-by-city basis and learn how to apply it to different cities in different ways. They're doing this initiative in... 36 cities around the world. Some of them I already mentioned, the English-speaking ones I mentioned earlier. And in addition to those global norms, they're establishing local and regional support networks to show the locals how to adapt. Now, that was straight out of the North American Union document from the CFR that William Weld uh, spearheaded and Heidi Cruz signed off on, among other people. And they talked about how They would try to rationalize or normalize Canada, Mexico, and the U.S. put together and have the same laws and everything, and the most restrictive law would be the law for the whole North American Union, and that what they would need to do is establish a Bilderberg-type group to teach the legislators how to adapt. Um, those laws, which is totally unconstitutional for us, for sure. But it showed how they work, that this stuff is deliberate. And that's what I see here. And once they do that, so they establish the global norms, they teach people on the ground, so they don't want the nation states, they do want the cities, in my opinion, teach people on the ground how to implement it. That feels like the de facto world government run by, let's call this big philanthropy. As per that 2010 Rockefeller Foundation document, that talks about that as being one of the scenarios. And that scenario, by the way, included slowing down interaction and communication and transportation. So this idea of not having as much business travel, that kind of thing, people being isolated, is consistent with that model of the future. Next title. Developing and supporting the ideal culture for hybrid working. We talked about a lot of this stuff. This is where they used COVID as the experiment. They figured out how to make it work. They're trying to get the UK government to help them train like 10 million people to code, to help train people how to live in the digiverse, to have the skills um, to build it and to live in it. And they even said one of the things that they were doing, I'm not 100% sure I understand how this is related to hybrid working, but they set up a rapid vaccination program for all employees in India for all the businesses that were in this program. And I guess they're trying to say that they can help in the real world too. Not 100% sure. Next title, Business Has a Big Role to Play in Vaccinating the World. They said, this is literally out of the, this article that was written before the vaccinations rolled out. Uh, it said, workplace is a key hub for evangelizing the vaccine and that they need two-thirds compliance. They need two-thirds of the people to get vaccinated. I wouldn't be surprised if that's what we have in this country. And then they backed off. Anyway, they said that the vaccination program, get this, will provide a rich source of data. And I have to say, Obamacare, I said the Sandy Hook thing was about information. Obamacare was about information, too. From from something I had um, heard one of these big power players say long before Obamacare rolled out, we need national health care so we can have the information about the individuals. Wow. I think they talked about using it for biometric you know, digital ID, basically, at borders and stuff. So, all of the, I mean, the information, because information is power. So, the thing called total information awareness established by Bush, the motto was scientia est potentia, like, knowledge is power, I think, is how that's translated. I mean, they know it, and they're not going to show you how they're going to use that power until they're sure that they, and only they, have the information, and they have it all. Oh, and by the way, the total information awareness, motto, whatever, symbol, was the the triangle, like from the dollar bill with an eyeball, and then the eyeball was beaming. Uh, he, you know, He uh, was seeing the entire world, so it was like the globe, the eyeball looking at it, but the eyeball was in the corner, the top of the pyramid. Infosys, if you go to the wiki page for Infosys, for what reason, I don't know. The picture for Infosys is the Infosys pyramid, and it's a pyramid, a real pyramid, looks like the one in front of the Louvre. So there is definitely a total information awareness theme going on, I think. I don't know. Okay, next title. How, quote, Dig Once Can Democratize Digital Connectivity. Democratize it. So Dig Once means they want everywhere in the world to pay for and build to dig up the road and put these huge, huge cables, whatever... um, I forget what they're called, but like... the the physical infrastructure they need for this digital world, they want basically governments to pay for and they want it done in the whole world and they want everyone to be able to use it. And by everyone, it's going to end up being, I think, just those guys because I think the small, medium-sized businesses will become less and less competitive because a lot of them that I was saying before, a lot of them, their data is what's valuable to them. And if data is nationalized then they won't really have an incentive to produce it. They won't really have an incentive. They won't really have the assets to use it. And I just don't envision them being able to be... I just think that there's going to be more oligopolization. I just think there's going to be more concentration at the top. And I can tell you the fact that these guys are promoting it makes me think that that's for sure the truth. And I actually was trying to ask people who know a little more about this stuff if I was reading it right. And I have to say... I don't, this isn't something that is top of mind for in the tech world of like this level, this high level stuff. I think people are, you know, in the nitty gritty trying to build stuff and they will. And I think as soon as they do, it'll basically get sucked up, (laughs) assimilated by these guys. But anyway, so they just want that infrastructure to be paid for by your taxes is what I can, what I think. Next title, final title. Three ways to fill the worrying cybersecurity gap. Again, they want to build, they want to centralize, they want to build back doors. They start with all this envisioning of the world shutting down. Here, let me read it, read this, what they say. For a moment, let's think of the unthinkable. A world without phones and internet, with idling trucks, trains, and planes because fuel pumps and charging stations are incapacitated, banks shuttered, food supply chains broken, and emergency services made all but unavailable. This bleak vision would be inevitable if electricity supplies were cut off by a cyber attack. And in, in that article, they say you don't even have to imagine it because you experienced it with COVID. And I see that all the time. They And even in this article, it happens again, where they said, and you see the germs of the cyber attack in the in the fire eyes thing, fire eyes breach, the solar winds breach. So that's what false flags are for, to make stuff scare you, make you think it's real. So all of this stuff goes together for them to want us to fear the cyber pandemic and want to prepare for it. But really, in my opinion, again, decentralized is better. Like McAfee fixed the virus problem. He could fix the cybersecurity problem in a decentralized way. The way our government is doing it is they keep back doors open, which makes us more vulnerable. That's what I think the cybersecurity stuff is about, for them to have access to everything everywhere. And on top of that, again, this is part of what they're getting governments to pay for. One of the few one of the short list of things on the IBM list and the Springboard list for training to use government money to train people is for cybersecurity. They need, I think this was the one where they said they needed 4 million people just for cybersecurity and they only have 2.5 million. So it feels like they are, I mean, they're saying out loud, they, they're, they want to get the government to build the metaverse, to pay them to build the metaverse, and then they're going to control it. With their alliance, but Infosys is like, I mean, I I can't imagine anyone having more of an interest in this digital world that the World Economic Forum is building. And that's why when I look at Rishi Sunak, I think he's not a Manchurian candidate for another country, like they might say. He's not a Manchurian candidate even for the World Economic Forum. He's a Manchurian candidate for Infosys, which may in itself be the greatest influencer in the World Economic Forum. Like, I always look and say, who's behind it? Who's behind it? It might be just like, it might really be as banal, venal, like, uh, I don't know, as saying that these guys just want, they want to control the world. They want the entire world to be their monopoly. That's what I feel like. But here's my hope. Here is my hope, is that I think these Tories, that there's like 160,000 or 170,000 actual Tory voters, registered party members, I think they're pissed at how this went down. And two-thirds of the country is now sympathetic, or more than 50% of the country is sympathetic to Labour, which means a general election could be clamored for. I feel like there's a chance that the people there just won't stand for it. They just won't stand for it. I mean, it was it's just so obvious that he was, you know, crowned PM instead of really reflecting the interests of the people. And that would be good because that would slow this down. And you know what else it might do? It might foster exposure. Like what I just did right here, if they really understand it, then maybe they'll shine light on it and it will at least slow it down. I think that would be great because I think this guy is going to spend the next two years trying to plant the seeds for all these different programs. And I do not think the media is going to expose it. But I do think that the British people are kind of wise to it. And hopefully they will not be intimidated or shouted down by accusations of prejudice not to stand up for keeping Keeping the UK a real place and not and not the first city of the Digiverse. So that's my take on fishy rishy, man. I didn't I didn't realize how far down this rabbit hole I would go or how many little rabbit holes were inside it. Anyway, I hope that you enjoyed the show. I hope it was worth waiting for. I am Monica Perez. Uh, and if you did enjoy it, please share it on social media or with someone you think would also enjoy it. Feel free to tweet at me at Monica Perez Show.